29th of October, 1943, drew the column of fours which slowly shuffled forward from Millbank, up Great College Street, under a scarred brick wall, on which, during the hours of darkness in the preceding spring, a zealous arthritic communist had emblazoned the words, Second Front Now, until they reached the door under the blasted and bombed west window. The people of England were long habituated to queues. Some had joined the procession, ignorant of its end, hoping perhaps for cigarettes or shoes, but most were in a mood of devotion. In the street a few words were exchanged. No laughter. The day was overcast, damp, misty, and still. Winter overcoats had not yet appeared. Each member of the crowd carried a respirator, valueless now, the experts secretly admitted, against any gas the enemy was likely to employ, but still the badge of a people in arms. Women predominated. Here and there a serviceman, British, American, Polish, Dutch, French, displayed some pride of appearance. The civilians were shabby and grubby. Some, for it was their lunch hour, munched Woolton pies. Others sucked cigarettes made of the sweepings of canteen floors. Bombing had ceased for the time being, but the livery of air raid shelter remained the national dress. As they reached the Abbey Church, which many were entering for the first time in their lives, all fell quite silent as though they were approaching a corpse lying in state. The sword they'd come to see stood upright between two candles on a table counterfeiting an altar. Policemen guarded it on either side. It had been made at the king's command as a gift to the steel-hearted people of Stalingrad. An octogenarian who'd made ceremonial swords for five sovereigns rose from his bed to forge it. Silver, gold, rock crystal, and enamel had gone to its embellishment. In this year of the Sten Gun, it was a notable weapon, and was first exhibited as a feat of craftsmanship at Goldsmiths Hall and at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Some few took comfort at this evidence that ancient skills survived behind the shoddy improvisation of the present. It was not thus that it affected the hearts of the people. Every day the wireless announced great Russian victories while the British advance in Italy was coming to a halt. The people were suffused with gratitude to their remote allies, and they venerated the sword as the symbol of their own generous and spontaneous emotion. The newspapers and the Ministry of Information caught on. The Times dropped into poetry. I saw the sword of Stalingrad, then bowed down my head from the light of it. Spirit to my spirit, the might of it, silently whispered, O mortal, behold, I am the life of Stalingrad. You and its people shall unite in me. Men yet unborn in the great light in me, triumphs shall sing when my story is told. The gossip writer of the Daily Express suggested it should be sent round the kingdom. Cardiff, Birmingham, Sheffield, Manchester, Glasgow, and Edinburgh paid its secular honours in their art galleries and guild halls. Now, back from its tour, it reached its apotheosis, exposed for adoration hard by the shrine of St. Edward the Confessor and the sacring place of the kings of England. Guy Crouchback drove past the line of devotees on his way to luncheon. Unmoved by the popular enthusiasm for the triumphs of Joe Stalin, who now qualified for the name of Uncle, as Guy had done, and Apthorpe, he was not tempted to join them in their piety. The 29th of October, 1943, had another and more sombre significance for him. It was his 40th birthday, and to celebrate the occasion, he'd asked Jumbo Trotter to luncheon.
It was through Jumbo's offices that he now sat at ease behind a fanny driver instead of travelling by bus. After four years of war, Jumbo preserved his immunity to sumptuary regulations. As also did Reuben. In a famine-stricken world, the little fish restaurant dispensed in their seasons Colchester oysters, scotch salmon, lobsters, prawns, gulls' eggs, which rare foods were specifically exempt from the law which limited the price of hotel meals to five shillings, and often caviar obtained only Reuben knew how through diplomatic channels. Most surprising of all, there sometimes appeared cheeses from France, collected by intrepid parachutists and conveyed home by submarine. There was an abundance of good wine, enormously costly, at a time when the cellars of the hotels were empty and wine merchants dealt out meagre monthly parcels only to their oldest customers. Reuben had for some years enjoyed a small and appreciative clientele. Once he